Hi, everyone. Um, I am here with Lena Anderson, um, author of Meta Modernity, uh, Meaning and Hope in a Complex World. Um, really excited to uh, have some conversation about meta modernity, meaning uh, religion, uh, spirituality, uh, and, and explore all sorts of layers to the multi-layered uh, meta modernity that we find ourselves in. Um, in terms of, gosh, a, a a bio or an introduction, I don't know if you want to say anything about yourself um, from the get-go. Uh, I, I could do yeah, do that. Thank you for inviting me. Um, so I studied business economy for three years. So I am technically a, a business economist. I also studied theology for a while in Copenhagen, but never completed it. Instead, I converted to, to Judaism. And I have written a book called The Nordic Secret. Um, and I developed the book together with my Swedish colleague, Thomas Bjorkman. And then I've written, as you said, Metamodernity. I've also written a book uh, called Bildung about the, this German concept of, of education and moral and emotional development. And before that, I wrote 15 books in Danish. I'm not gonna you know, torment anybody with all those titles. So I'm just gonna stick with the three uh, titles in English. And then I have been uh, for the past two years, a member of the Club of Rome. So that, awesome. I Thank think you. that's the... Yeah, that's great. And also you mentioned your, your Danish uh, work, which, um, as an as a, a lover of, of Kierkegaard, I'm I'm interested in. Uh, I think that it would translate to both and is the name. Exactly, yeah. and it is a you know playing off of Kierkegaard's either or. Yeah. Uh, so one, I could get into that. But yeah, we'll, potentially. You, uh... <laughs> I'm I'm intrigued too if there will be an English translation of that at some point or. Uh, yeah. It's two thousand three hundred pages, so it, it'll take a while. Sounds like a, a magnum opus. Um, it is. Um, well, it took it took 10 years to write it it's five books wow awesome well okay so yeah maybe we can we can dip into that a little bit um yeah i okay so i'd, I'd love to start um gosh there's so many ways into this conversation um but maybe just beginning a little bit with that that bio because i was reading a little bit on your wikipedia page it says anderson studied theology for four years with the specific goal of becoming a pastor in the danish evangelical lutheran church in 1993 she had a religious crisis and quit her studies when she decided to convert to judaism and uh that's uh sounds like there's a lot there. Um, and also a part of why that's really intriguing to me is uh, very similar to uh, a kind of experience that I had. Um, and in terms of this, uh, kind of planning for uh, becoming a pastor and then a, an academic of, of biblical studies and eventually ending those studies and going a different route. Um, so uh, there's a personal journey there that I feel like could be really interesting to explore. And again, I don't even know if we should start there or maybe start a little bit zoomed out uh, in the more the abstract realm here with metamodernism. Um, but yeah, maybe, maybe let's start there um, in terms of talking about metamodernism just to frame this a little bit or metamodernity. Um, first, I'm kind of intrigued by the question of uh, how you use the term, a little bit where you got it from, and um, how you how you think about the idea of metamodernity in the context of kind of the negotiations around how this term is being used and where how you use it and what that means to you, and maybe compare and contrast with metamodernism as it's kind of been explored in cultural studies. Right. So uh, the first time I, I encountered the word 
metamodernism was the, the two Dutch cultural um, theorists, uh, what's his name, uh, Timotheus van Merlen and Robin van den Acker. Mm -hmm. And the way that I read their manifesto and the articles and blog posts and so forth was that they had this sort of superposition of feelings. Uh, one was the modern sincerity and the other one was the postmodern uh, irony. And they had grown up with the irony of, of the 90s and, and the early 2000s. And then suddenly because of the financial crash in 2008, they realized that, oops, there is something called the real world and you can't just have, you know, distance yourself from everything. You're actually part of it and, and you have to take the world seriously. And, and that was kind of a new realization. And, um, and, and I, I mean, I grew up in the 70s and uh, came of age as a young person in my 20s and the 90s. So I'm, I guess I'm sort of a generation older. So I can see where they were coming from, but I also came come from something that is, I mean, has 20 years extra at the, I mean, at the beginning of that. So I was, I was there when the wave of irony in the 90s was new. And we had all these um, uh, ironical uh, parties uh, where we dressed up in bad taste. And uh, that was the big new thing when I was young. Um, and so I, I, I could totally see where they were coming from and what they had grown up in and how that was not enough. Um, and then the more I explored this and looked into what are cultural codes and what does modernity mean and what does post-modernity or post-modernism, what is modernism and what is post-modernism, there were two things that I realized. One is that there's a difference between a modernity and post-modernity and a post-modernism and modernism. And there are more than just two cultural codes. There are at least four that we need to include in our understanding of who we are as humans and where our civilization is coming from. And the more I've been working with this, uh, when I first wrote about this, I was also using the word metamodernism, but I was including four cultural codes. And so the first cultural code that I was looking at is the indigenous, prehistoric indigenous. So that's basically the Stone Age. It, it's both hunter-gatherers and the earliest agriculture and pastoral nomads. Um, but there are, I mean, the, there's huge differences between um, the, the hunter-gatherers and the settled communities. There's group size and there's different uh, animism and, and different mythologies, but there's an, an even bigger um, change when you go into the Bronze Age and the Iron Age and the city-states and the bigger societies. And that's where we have first polytheism and then at least in the Western or Judeo-Christian uh, Judeo uh, cultural uh, zone, um, the, the monotheism further to the east, you got uh, Hinduism as we know it today, and there's Buddhism and there's Taoism um, and Confucianism. So there's, there's the, a, a lot of new thoughts developing in what we would then call either the pre-modern or the classical era. And then comes, of course, modernity and post-modernity. And that's where I talk about iti instead of ism, because that is what I, I mean, ism I see as uh, you could call it an ideology, you could call it a narrative, you could call it many things, but the modernity and the postmodernity, I see as, a, as an epoch, and it, it's a time span, and um, it, it's a societal structure, and it has, it has power behind it. 
um, and and so it, it's a more complex thing than than just the, the postmodern ironical just <laughs> um, a, a set of norms or expectations or or stories um, and so when I write about meta modernity I include all four major cultural codes and I see it as uh, an opportunity for us in the future to create a civilization that is metamodern, which includes and offers elements of uh, postmodernism, modernism, the classical era, and the indigenous uh, culture. Um, and not just that, uh, it, it also has to be locally anchored and having to had grown out of a, a local flora and fauna, uh, climate, environment, historical circumstances. So, of course, um, the, the pre-modern or any kind of indigenous culture will be very diverse around the globe. The uh, classical, uh, I mean, it's mostly, I mean, what we have left of that is, is, is what we know as religion today. Um, but but these ideas and thoughts and cultural elements are, of course, uh, from even bigger societies. So you can actually talk about civilizations in, say, the Middle East or Asia or Africa or uh, the Nordics or uh, the Americas, for instance, even though there are many classical cultures there. Um, so there, there are some, there are fewer of them. They they have a bigger geographical span of where they came together and how they, you know, dominated a culture. Um, and then when we get into the modern, I would say that's when we approach something that is universal. Um, and then when we get to the postmodern, um, it kind of has all of the elements and and we can deconstruct it as individuals we can deconstruct it as uh communities and and i would say nations uh or cultures uh, based on one you know shared epistemology among i don't know millions of people where you share a language for instance or we can deconstruct as a species and say what how does this interfere with what is universal about being human. So, I mean, there it's, it's very complex and it's many different things, but in order for us to handle ourselves with the technologies that we're creating and with the gigantic challenges that we're facing with climate change and loss of biodiversity and all the other catastrophes that we created for ourselves, um, in order for everybody to find meaningful tools and narratives with which to grasp as much of the world as possible, I think metamodernity in the way that I describe it offers the most opportunities for the most people. And one of my very crucial points in what I'm writing is that if you come from, say, a very traditional uh, patriarchal uh, religious society and your whole meaning making is based on a sacred um, book. I'm not going to take that away from you, but I am going to add something. I, I strongly encourage you to add the modernity and science to that. That will change your religion, I mean, or your perception of the religion, but I'm not going to take it away from you. I'm not going to take away your uh, stories, your rituals, your uh, annual celebrations, 
the, the structures that keep your family together. And um, I, I'm definitely going to, I mean, not me, but I mean, the modernity is definitely going to challenge some of that. Uh, but the point is not that everything is going to be taken away from you. And likewise, with people who have a modern scientific understanding of the world, um, I'm definitely not going to suggest that we're going to take away science from anybody. But I am going to suggest that maybe people should try looking into what went before science and how people lived as animists uh, in nature and how we can relate emotionally to nature in a different way than just analyzing it as, you know, cells and reproduction and Darwinistic models of how things evolve. Um, so I, I think we could all um, develop a much richer understanding of the world and of ourselves. And it would allow us to communicate with people and tolerate people who have a different worldview than ourselves. Um, uh, yeah. Awesome. Okay. I think that's a really good kind of framework for all this. Um, because yeah, what I'm, what I was really interested in exploring specifically was that idea of, um, you know, how do you, how do you add and in some ways change uh, without losing um, something. And I think that this has in many ways been the problem, even in postmodernism with kind of multiculturalism and pluralism is like, how uh, can there be the coexistence of these different uh, layers, uh, cultural codes in ways that, um, yeah, aren't sort of mutually exclusive. Um, and that seems to be, to me, one of the biggest challenges. And, um, but just to back up for a minute. So, um, yeah, I think that one of the things I really liked about what you were doing um, in this book, Men of Modernity, is bringing in those other cultural codes, because um, as you talk about metamodernism, as it was kind of uh, formulated by the Dutch cultural theorists, um, is sort of this oscillation back and forth between modern, uh, I'm sorry, uh, postmodern and modern kind of cultural codes. And you were kind of bringing out the element that, well, wait, there's kind of more to it than that. And I, I kind of connected a lot with that myself um, and sort of maybe to a certain degree was sort of reading that into some of their work because it seemed to me that metamodernism almost was an oscillation between postmodern and pre-postmodern uh, elements but of course whenever you try to use a word like pre-postmodern you sound ridiculous so <laughs> yeah where, where do you land <laughs> yeah but so thinking about it um rather than this oscillation specifically and part of the reason was there's a problem i think in talking about modernism or modernity as just the way that it tends to be discussed in those contexts which is that it's sort of all naive idealism utopian you know mythic narratives and all these things and it's, you know, it's, it's not quite that, that it's bringing some of these traditional or pre-modern elements into that as well. So it's in some ways, I think what your formulation does is it kind of uh, brings a, an added layer of complexity to it and kind of, um, you know, disambiguates what was sort of lumped together in that one category. Right. And I also think that, um, I mean, I don't have children, but something happens when you do get children and start raising a family or when you, uh, you know, lose a parent and have to bury them because then there are aspects of life for which modernity simply does not have a sufficient language uh, and definitely not post-modernity. I mean, you just, you lost your parent and you don't, you don't joke about that. I mean, you can in a very narrow group, but it's just in order to have, you know, 
distance you from from the pain but you do need a funeral and you do need a ritual around that and a gathering where things are actually deeply meaningful and uh, modernity does not offer that uh, you can construct them. I mean, there are definitely um, atheistic, humanistic rituals that people have invented for this. Same thing with marriage and the transition from from uh, child to adult. I mean, there's um, attempts at, at making new rituals, but then, uh, I mean, and and that can be meaningful. But why not use the uh, 2,000, 4,000, I don't know, eight or 10,000 years of struggle that people have already had with these different uh, or difficult situations in life and um, cherishing and uh, recognizing that yeah. there is already a language for this and there's already music for it and there's al already beauty so that has been created for this. Yeah. No, so that's maybe let's use that as an example, because that's a, that's an, exactly the point. And that's actually one, actually a really good test case, too, to kind of show where purely the postmodern modern oscillation doesn't quite capture the entirety of it there. Because, you know, being sincere, even from a modern kind of cultural code standpoint, it's hard to do that in the way that you're talking about for those what we would think of as those religious or liminal moments um, that you almost have to. The word I want to use is revert to this kind of traditional language um, in order but, to. Is that, and exactly, because, I mean, there there's a whole vocabulary in, in all of the spiritual and religious traditions that without those words, our language becomes, I mean, it, it's, it loses depth. And, yeah. And there are yeah. emotions and struggles and existential challenges uh, where we kind of lose the ability to to get really deep if we only have the the vocabulary of modernity. For sure, yeah. And I and so to use that as an example too. Let's here's kind of what I'd like to uh, focus or or parse out a little bit, which is so you have this. Let's um, let's call it what do you want to call it? A pre-modern language or or okay. Yeah. Um, and. Now let's use that example. Let's say of a death. Um, when you're say at a funeral, you know you'll you'll go, and if it's a religious, a religiously framed funeral, then there will be a, a minister or pastor or priest who will be reading from a text, and they'll use language like soul, and you know this person, and and it can fit into a broader narrative. Let's say of well, this person's soul is now departed from the earth and it's gone up to heaven. Let's say that that's the language that's used. Um, I think that's really an interesting uh, kind of example where, so how does this then interact with the modern world, right? So like in the sense that those terms when they were developed and when they kind of arise on the, on the scene culturally uh, are, are uh, situated and understood within a, a pre-modern cosmos and a cosmology. And uh, now when we think of up, you know, it's not heaven, it's this endless universe. Right. So, and yet Which when it goes in all directions, by the way, right, so, that's true. And, yeah. and, yeah. <laughs> um, but, but then in this kind of uh, religious moment, we're sort of reverting back to a language that seems to kind of at least be in some tension then with the modern world. Now, what I, then there, of course, it's like, well, 
and this is what I'm trying to get at, or or what I, I'm I'm curious, what your understanding of men and modernity, how it um, kind of negotiates these things, because there are different ways you can try to resolve that tension. Um, you can try to interpret pre-modern language in terms of, say, a modern cosmology and sort of update it in that way. Um, or you can just, you know, give up on or abandon kind of modern say cosmology and just say no there really is an actual heaven up there um and then you're kind of reverting more just more than just your language you're reverting entirely kind of your your um kind of worldview uh cosmologically um and so it seems that something needs to be done in order to harmonize these seemingly disparate and intention ideas um and my question for you is um of course Historically, the kind of relationship between those ideas has sort of been antagonistic. Modernity is sort of, no, you traditional or pre-modern folks, you're just wrong. Get over it. Um, yeah, it and, isn't there. Right. And it's sort of this negation and, and this that kind of a critique. And then with postmodernism, there's sort of a, a fur, like a, a, a recognition that these are two different narratives that are kind of working in different areas or what have you. But in, in the process of kind of doing that just relativizes everything. And so it doesn't really provide... Um, kind of that that framework that would be necessary. So what I'm curious is to what degree in this meta-modern context uh, are these ideas reconciled or are they held simultaneously? Um, and do you understand? I guess yeah. maybe my question would be um, in some ways, because you talk about the multi-layeredness of, of meta-modernity and that there's this co these kind of coexisting cultural codes. But does that mean that we're sort of slipping in and out of different cultural codes? Or is there a meta-modern cultural code that somehow is able to reconcile them all or something? Um, I would say that we slip in and out, but it can be, you know, in, in split seconds and you can you can do it, you know, 12 minutes and then 30 seconds and, you know, an hour and a day, <laughs> um, depending on the situation. What meta-modernity gives is a framework for addressing this. And, and saying we have all this. And uh, if we look at the, the pre-modern, so what we what gave us what we know as religion today, um, when people invented this understanding of the world, they did not know science. So the way that we think today, who were brought up in the West and went to a school system that gave us science and testing hypotheses and measuring stuff, result of the Renaissance and the Enlightenment. This forced us to think in a very specific way. And then when we look at the religious text and rituals, we take that scientific understanding of things and apply it on something that did not know science. And then we say those people had no idea what they were doing. They were crazy. They thought that you could, you know, turn water into wine or walk on the water or, I mean, all these things that people during that era may not even have understood as, you know, in, in our scientific rational sense, they might actually have understood that in a symbolic sense. And we've come, become really poor at accepting symbolic narrative but this is symbolic narrative. And, um, and it's really hard to find out what did people actually, how do they actually understand these stories and this sacred text? Yeah. And, um, and so poetry, 
we can use poetry today. I mean, we can use imagery. I could, I could call you the flower of my life and everybody would know that you're not a tulip or a rose or anything. It's something that I say about you because I, I lack better words. And um, if we all expressed ourselves in that way, it, it would not turn other people into flowers. Yeah. It, but so, but we would still be able to communicate. And, and one of the, one thing that's universal among all cultures is the ability for symbolic language, but not for abstract thought. And what we have created, it actually started with the Greek and it came with uh, the alphabet, was the ability of abstract thought. You can also see some of it in the uh, Torah, the uh, early you know, Old Testament. And you can also see sort of proto things approaching abstract thought in, among some of the Egyptians. But I mean, this is really, a product of writing and why is it because when you write things down you can look at your own thoughts and you can return to what you were thinking yesterday or a year ago and when you can see what you wrote yesterday or a year ago you can start thinking about yourself in a different way um, and so there's there's a difference between the me yesterday and the me today and you can start having a different set of thoughts and it's the same thing with, with mathematical symbols. And you can, uh, I mean, one of the things about abstract thought is that it's really hard without written culture, written language. So if you say, for instance, um, all elephants are blue, Dumbo is blue, is Dumbo an elephant? This is a logical question. I don't know if you know the answer. I'm not going to force you to... Well, yeah, this I'd have to get my Aristotle exactly. and my syllogisms back. Yeah. And you would have to draw little circles of blue yeah. stuff and elephants. Yeah. So we can think things when we have writing. I think you said that's a sufficient or it's a, it's a necessary cause, but not a sufficient cause or something right. like that. Yeah. But exactly. But it's uh, so so all cultures. I mean, I could have called you my elephant and anybody in any culture would get something out of that. But if I came up with that logical syllogism, not everybody would like, oh, my God, what did she, did she just say? Yeah. Um, well, and, so and I have a question about that. So then because, yeah. I, um, uh, yeah, I think of uh, maybe um, like Joseph Campbell does a great job at sort of looking at the different religious traditions, mythic traditions and bringing out the ways in which this is symbolic, rich, metaphorical, poetic language and and is able then to get modern minded people interested in myth you know because rather than just looking at it and say oh you know that's silly you know the yeah. that, the bird didn't you know the the universe didn't come from an egg they were just wrong it's like no there's we're talking about generative fertility and all this stuff um and so once you can get into that kind of metaphorical poetic mode there is a deep enriching of uh the symbolism and the and the, the and nature it's, of it's moral narrative yeah so but, i mean but yeah. here's my question though is that so to so that what I would say would be one way in which you could kind of update a pre-modern uh, narrative into the modern by kind of viewing it through the lens of poetry. However, um, when I think about pre-modern religious traditions, um, there are ways in which I know that for people kind of psychologically that it doesn't work to do that for them. And maybe an example would be, you know, you can say to someone, 
um, all right, well, let's say, you know, Jesus was a healer and he healed people or produced, you know, did miracles. Well, of course, in the modern worldview, well, there's no such thing as a miracle per se. So then you can say, well, it's meant metaphorically so we can have our modernism cake and eat it too. Um, you know, and then in the sense that there was some, you know, richness of depth or even a more fundamental example would be the, the idea of the resurrection, you know, like there are many interpretations that try to kind of say, no, this is understood metaphorically that there's a enrichment of life that comes from et cetera, et cetera. But for the kind of pre-modern traditionalism that I am aware of, um, people will for hear that. People, it was real. It was real. It was literal. Yeah. And that is where the whole bulk of its power comes from. It's like, and in fact, Paul kind of says as much in one of his letters, right? You know, if this is not true, then, you know, I'm, I'm wasting my time, basically. And I think a lot of people feel that way. So I don't know. I So my experience and part of uh, why your story is an intriguing kind of uh, parallel potentially or maybe has some overlap is that um, I kind of was raised in the evangelical church here in America, which I presume is somewhat different from the evangelical Lutheran church uh, there. But um, and in, in, in the context of e American evangelicalism, I think there's a very strong sense of that pre-modern literalism of like this literally happened. And if you try to engage someone kind of who for whom that, uh, you know, lens is is crucial to their identity and to their whole religious and spiritual sensibility saying, no, this is a metaphor just isn't going to cut it. So I'm, that's kind of what I'm interested in, in terms of like, does metamodernity allow for literalism or does it, does it demand a kind of update or change? And, and to what degree do things that some people would view to be essential get lost in that attempt? I mean, I would, I would not, See, I, I would do something else. I would say, that's that's okay, but you have to understand science. Let let's uh, let's uh, you know what you you can have that. It, it's no problem. You just, but it is. I mean, the 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 democratic realm, the political sphere, um, modern society, is based on a number of principles that, uh, and among them are that. Um, you cannot use uh, revelation as a political uh, program. So you're, you're free to have your faith and beliefs and all of that in your religious community and in your family and among your friends and wherever you want to have it, but you cannot bring it into politics. In politics, because this is democratic system where we have a democratic system, in, in politics, uh, we are in the modern world. And so here our arguments are based on science and human rights and principles of, uh, of equality uh, between anybody above the age of 18. And, um, and you're free to believe whatever you want, but you can't make me have the same belief unless you can prove it with science. But then you would have to understand science first. So if you want to bring in a religious argue, argument into the political sphere, you have to use science to prove that you can actually make that argument and then be my yeah. guest. So, yeah. um, so we have, I mean, we can take an example like water, for instance, where you have um, like in the modern world, uh, it boils at a hundred uh, degrees Celsius. I forgot what it's like in Fahrenheit. Um, 12. 
212 there you go i learned something <laughs> Wonder, today wonderfully arbitrary yes exactly and where when does it freeze uh 32 okay zero so i mean napoleon did something great he, uh, he got europe into the metric system and so um water has it has the biggest volume at four degrees celsius and so uh, 10 centimeters by 10 centimeters by 10 centimeters is one liter it's a thousand milliliters um anyway when that boils at 100 degrees celsius i mean that's the modern explanation that's that's how science works but then of course you can go into the catholic church and you have all this water that you can you know sprinkle on 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 people and stuff and it has you know uh religious properties but that's in the pre-modern understanding of the world and you can't bring them into the same sphere yeah you can still boil the, the water there but it won't change the narrative so i guess yeah i'm wondering i guess maybe my question though is like uh to what degree is it possible to hold so many kind of cultural codes simultaneously um and i don't know not experience a kind of cognitive dissonance to the point of just a schizophrenia or something um and maybe arguably you know could you view our contemporary world in the sense-making crisis and the meaning-making crisis precisely because there are so many competing cultural codes that people aren't able to hold them all simultaneously yes and one of the reasons they are not able to hold them simultaneously is because they don't know that there are codes I mean, everybody thinks that the way that they view the world is the way to view the world, unless you've actually spent time exploring this deliberately or, you know, have talked to somebody like you or me or read about it. Um, but once we, if, if this were, you know, general knowledge from around, I don't know, eighth grade or something, just introduce it. You know, there's different, there's been different ways of understanding the world throughout history and the way that we understand it in our part of the world, we have all this modern science and we have postmodernism that has deconstructed everything. Um, and we also have this heritage from the pre-modern era. And then we have 200,000 years of uh, history as hunter-gatherers. And that's the way our brain works. And everything that came after that has been an add-on to a Stone Age hardware. So if, if we could introduce that, I don't know, around the age of 15, 16, something like that, just let it simmer. And then when you go to college and then later on, um, look deeper into it. Yeah. Then, then you would have a framework for understanding why you have these conflicts of uh, understandings of the world and why you can go to the church and use water in one way, also baptism. Uh, and then go to the you know kitchen and use it in a different way and know how long your eggs are going to boil um so, how, so how do you how do you navigate between the, you 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 use a metaphor of the uh of the of an, an epistemological web uh or archipelagos of meaning or something like that that yep. there are these sort of different cultural codes that you can navigate between um and so i don't know i mean personally phenomenologically how how do you maintain uh, which something which seems like cognitive dissonance, maybe you would say it is or it isn't, maybe maybe a metamodern perspective of it allows it to not feel like dissonance, but how, like maybe give some examples of what that looks like. So I, I mean, for the majority of the week, I'm in the modern postmodern world using, you know, computer internet 
uh, I'm secular. I doubt that there is such a thing as a God. Um, I, I look at history from a, a scientific point of view, as I just said. I mean, our brains are 200,000 years old in the current shape and form. Um, I have no doubts about uh, science giving unique kind of answers that are absolutely necessary and true. Um, but it's also really poor at, uh, you know, providing a deeper meaning, a sense of community and uh, a way of, of being, you know, um, connected spiritually to other people. And so for me, Judaism was the right kind of framework for that. And it has to do with many things, um, philosophically, uh, aesthetically, uh, culturally, there are things that resonate with me and my personality. So I, I chose that. Uh, but I mean, could have been Hinduism, uh, Buddhism, could have been other religions had I, had I been different and had the situation been different. Um, and then when I get to uh, Friday afternoon, evening, uh, sunset, I light my two Shabbos candles. I have Kiddush and bless the sabbath uh, through the wine and the bread and then i'm sort of entering a little corner of the iron age for 25 hours and i uh, don't listen to music i don't go out and spend money um i uh i mean i've i've pre-cooked all my meals i don't turn on the stove i mean there's there are things that i just don't do um it's not like there, I mean, from time to time, I, I do spend money, but it's not like I go out shopping. It's only if there's, you know, I go out for a beer or something with a friend, uh, but I don't, I don't work, for instance. So yeah. I, I, I set time off and, and behave in a very different way. And then come Saturday evening, I exit the, the Shabbos, it ends, and then I enter the modern postmodern world again and, and start working and doing all kinds of stuff on Sunday. Now, so, yeah. um, and, and there are different realms and they are um, different ways of being together with other people. And it's a different kind of relaxing when you know that you can't start working rather than if you just choose to take a day off. So it's a framework that is larger than me. And I chose to, uh, you can say, obey it, but it gives me a freedom that I made that decision because then I know what to do every, you know, Friday to Saturday. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. I, I, one of the things that I find really intriguing about how religious ritual and practice works is there's a constraint that one voluntarily accepts and there's a, a kind of freedom that's gained by the um, adoption of those constraints, which yeah, is the rest of the week, I wouldn't want, I mean, I wouldn't want to live in the iron age. I, I could never become a, you know, uh, an ultra Orthodox uh, Jew who, who lives in a, you know, um, without the modern world and the secular world and political freedom and equal rights and all that stuff. I mean, definitely not. So, yeah. So what a thought that comes to mind is, you know, coming from a Protestant tradition, which also uh, America kind of in general, I think culturally has that heritage. There's such an emphasis on belief rather than practice um but which isn't to say obviously the practice and that is really i mean that is down to luther yeah so, sure 
what you're describing uh, are a lot of religious practices uh, and rituals, um, which in some ways you could think of as being exterior uh, manifestations uh, uh, of a religious commitment. Um, and I'm curious how that relates to the interior belief systems um, that are where I think a lot of the tension can begin to arise between these different cultural codes. Um, because as you can say, you know, you can light candles, you can do all that. And none of that is sort of saying, you know, think that the earth is made, you know, 6,000 years ago. Um, but there, if there are certain, uh, you know, belief commitments uh, that are rooted in that pre-modern uh, tradition that one is trying to embrace how do you, how does that get negotiated um, in your view? Um, I mean, here I see this is really a, a very much a Christian question because uh, and it, it's very much a Lutheran question because uh, Luther was the one who you know put all the emphasis on on the faith and um, and so when you take away the the action the the acts and everything has to be about faith. There isn't really very much left if you don't believe. And then, then it's a struggle. Um, and so, I mean, even in Catholicism where you have uh, lots of things that you can do at mass and, and you can confess, I mean, there are things that you can go and do, then you can, then you can add meaning to that as you do it. Um, so I would say 500 years ago, Luther was modern because he moved, he, he, he turned religion into, okay, so let's say 800 years ago, um, religion was not what we call, I mean, it was everything. It was like the traffic rules are today. You couldn't you couldn't move out into society without being religious. It was how things and power structures and everything's everything were defined, um, and so nobody asked about your faith. Um, there was a, a some um, uh, what do you call it uh, the uh, Inquisition where people asked about your faith, but also very much about your what you were doing and not doing. Um, but before that, it was just Christianity was was what there was, and then there were the Jews and the Qatars, and there were some other uh, you know minorities, and there was an, an you know eternal and internal struggle constantly about what to do with them, and unfortunately it wasn't always very nice. But let, let's put that aside from a strictly theological point of view within Christianity. Um, faith was not a, an issue and then came protestantism and said faith is everything and and that was actually a modern move at the time because it meant that the individual had to figure out what am i thinking about this thing called god and jesus and the religion and from the average peasant never having had to think about that to suddenly the average peasant and i don't know uh, aristocrat and bush burger bourgeois person middle class person having to think about this was huge and was the modern step and then came um the uh, uh pietistic movement and where you have bach and all his you know spiritual you know compositions um and and they 
we're not just focusing on, you know, do you believe, but how do you feel when you believe? So it became this emotional development and um, emotional intensity was suddenly a, a, an issue. And so people discovered their emotional life and their inner life in a new way. And many of the pietists were the people who, you know, were the first settlers in the United States because they couldn't have this emotional life in Europe and have this approach to religion. And so they traveled and, and created a, a whole new uh, country eventually. And, um, and so these, and, and then today when we, in, when we have science that deconstructs all of this and says there, there isn't this God and you can't prove the Bible and there's all this stuff that makes no sense from a scientific point of view and see we can measure how wrong this is. Um, then you say, but what am I gonna do with my emotions then? And still we have this longing for transcendence and we have this sense of, uh, I mean, emotional connection with the universe and everything. And what are we gonna call that? Some people call it spirituality, but that is exactly what, what religion has put into words and rituals and communities and societies. So, I mean, there are all these different aspects of it and layers of it. And, um, and so I think if, if I am in a religion that focuses on the faith rather than on the actions, I would say that feeling of transcendence, that sense of feeling that I that I am yeah, transcending myself and entering into a realm that is so much bigger than just being me and I'm connecting with something that is eternal, whatever that is. I, I would say that would qualify for faith, even though it may not directly be connected to uh, Christ and Jesus walking on the water and turning water into wine. I could still see that as a symbolic act but through telling that story and all the other uh, parables that that uh, that he was telling, um, I I can get a language for what is what is the morally right behavior, what is the good person, uh, what should be the values that my life is centered around. It, I'm I'm really intrigued though because I feel like this is is kind of getting precisely at it. Where I think what what you're talking about is something that is generative it's it's creating something new from what was which i think um is you know this this thing i'm trying to get at of like the difference between updating and you know like reinterpreting versus sort of uh kind of this contiguous just jumping back and forth right it's like um you know is it as simple on the one hand as I can believe that the world was made 6,000 years ago, one day a week. And then for the rest of the week, I don't, um, or choose not to talk to people about that or something. Um, so, yeah. So the, the belief that the world, the earth, uh, is really just the earth or is it the universe was created in six days and then God rested mm -hmm. in my point of view is actually a modern interpretation of a story that was created an explanation that was created before anybody was thinking in those extremely concrete and scientific terms. Um, okay. Yeah. So it, it, it would seem that there is certainly an element of what you're saying that, um, that there is this need to reinterpret and to uh, bring in and 
into modernity and past it, uh, these these metaphorical stories and scriptures, rather than just like toggling back to that um, as needed, as it were. Um, right, and there's, and I would say there there are two ways of um, reforming or uh, modernizing, uh, making meaningful these inherited uh, religions. Uh, in our time one is to say mm, I enjoy the secular world let me see how I can fit the religion into that and get some religious flavor without making it too complicated or you can come from within the religion and say we have all this understanding and uh, aesthetics and narrative and meaning making and tradition and ritual and so many different things how do we get most of it with us out into the future and and it's the latter approach that that i really prefer because that is when you come from an understanding of how are things interconnected if we do one thing here and have this narrative if we remove this corner of it what would what would it do over here uh rather than just coming from the outside and saying mm, i really in, enjoy christmas and the christmas tree uh but i don't like the story of the virgin um so I mean, so we skip right. There's that the danger of that new age eclecticism of just sort of yeah. you know the buffet style picking and yeah. choosing, and then you get yeah. something that as a result is rather kind of superficial and uh, right. And then really you add it. a little bit of Buddhism, and you I mean add, yeah. add some extra stuff, and then ah, we like Coca Cola anyway. Couldn't we fit that in somewhere? So um, yeah, so I, I I like the approach where you where you do your utmost to understand uh, where things are coming from and how they how they, you know, co-evolved within the religion and throughout different phases. And of course, you do get to things that are just, you know, can't keep doing it. It, uh, yeah. I mean, we, we do not stone anybody for, you know, um, adultery. And I'm, I'm really happy about that. Right. So, right. I mean, yeah. I'm, we're, there is progress. Let me ask you this. So what what do you make of the idea? Um, as you say, I mean, you're right. So these religious traditions kind of arise in the Iron Age and and kind of get developed succeedingly from there. But in many ways, that's where a lot of the material comes from. Um, and it can be sort of updated into these different cultural codes. Um, one thing I'm really interested in uh, is the idea of creating a new uh, I don't want to say a new tradition, but creating new symbols from within metamodernity itself and um, not necessarily reaching back to specific traditions and updating them, but uh, but kind of coming already from the, the kind of interpretation that you're talking about um, and sort of trying to generate some efficacious symbols and a framework from that. Um, I mean, if, if somebody has something that is deeply meaningful to them and they think this would be the most crucial thing that I could pass on to a child whenever I establish a family or when you do have children and you think this is, this is really a value around which I want to, you know, build my life. I think people should do that. Um, but one thing that, I mean... So what people invented and in like 3000 years ago or 2000 years ago in which we call religion today and when they built you know temples and cathedrals and so forth the reason why they could 
built societies around it back then. And some of these societies had, you know, millions of people living, you know, peacefully among each other because they shared the religion. Then there were all the others with the other religion. There was no peace there. But, with, you know, internally it brought peace. So it, it was social cohesion and it was internal peace in these big societies. The reason why they could do that was because they pushed the boundary for human cognition and understanding and epistemology. That is what religions did what, 2,000, 3,000 years ago and 1,500 years ago and 500 years ago. Then came science and pushed a different boundary. And religion was not able to be at the forefront of human cognition epistemology. And so it got kind of you know, conserved in time. And so I mentioned Bach before. So when he composed his music, that was the most advanced musical composition that anybody could make at the time where he was combining spirituality, math, music, aesthetics, human emotions, and created something that was just amazing. Um, if somebody, and, and so he was at the forefront, I mean, at the cutting edge of human cognition at the time. And so religion was literally, not literally, it was elevating people through, you know, spiritual input and words and rituals and aesthetics and going to a cathedral was like, whoa, that was the most amazing engineering feat that anybody could come up with at the time. So what would be the most amazing engineering feat that anybody could produce today? That would be sending people to Mars. Uh, would anybody compose a piece of music that would get us all in awe over watching, you know, the first two people landing on Mars? I don't know. But we wouldn't see it as a spiritual experience. We would see it as a scientific, you know, accomplishment. And so we just entered a different realm where the forefront of cognition and epistemology and creating of of new understanding is taking place on completely different terms than when people were, you know, creating philosophy and theology and, you know, cognition and epistemology with religion as the most advanced, uh, you know, intellectual endeavor. Yeah. So, uh, so the most advanced religion that we have today would have a really hard time of being exceeded by a new kind of religion because it would be based on science and something else. Well, it's, so it's I'm not saying you can't do it, but it, but it would be, I mean, you can't, I don't think you can construct it and say, now I want to create a meta modern religion that is more advanced than the religions that we have and the science that we have and the postmodern wokeness that we have. And then will create societies around it where you can bring up children on this uh, faith. But I mean, if somebody comes up with it, I'm totally open. I mean, yeah, bring well, it on. That's my project, I guess. Um, <laughs> no, it's interesting because, I mean, I think you're actually kind of speaking to the differentiation that, that begins to take place in the entrance to modernity where, I mean, science does start to break away from art and religion. Um, 
my supposition would be that uh, at the same time that art is breaking away, a lot of what we think of is that those spiritual sensibilities um, are kind of the forefront is now the aesthetic um, in the same way that you're talking about Bach kind of combining all these. Um, I mean, art and music have the ability to uh, evoke and to affect certain uh, uh, emotional and psychological um, states that uh, I think are awe-inspiring and sublime. Um, so I don't know. I almost wonder uh, how necessary the technological or the scientific component is in such an endeavor. If you could explore it to the to be at the forefront aesthetically, maybe that's what you would need. If that makes sense. So rather than needing to go to Mars or something like that, you could make this incredible artistic work that speaks to people's souls and infuses a sense of awe and wonder and deep connection. And, and you can have a community around, you know, and, and uh, an aesthetic object like that. But um, that would be my, my kind of thought about that. But your, your point is, is certainly taken. Um, I think what, what religion does and what science does and what political ideology at least used to do um, is that it is what through history uh, have given people hope and so the reason why people go to church or a temple or the mosque uh, or the reason why people subscribe to science is because it gives hope and uh, so far as science has been the hope giving uh, episteme that has been you know delivering the best results um, but it doesn't really speak to our emotions uh, and, you know, that sense of awe, well, a, a, a different sense of awe. Um, and so if you want to create a religion, it has to be, you know, there has to be the sense of, of hope, uh, transcendence, beauty. Uh, you have to be, you know, you um, have to actually believe in the stories that it is is telling and um and and i I would say it's an impressive challenge um but if somebody can come up with something that that delivers that uh interesting yeah Uh, i'm 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 interested too because um i think you're right very much about the hope um and and one of the one of the things that the pre-modern traditions provide in a way that the modern tradition can't is speaking to issues of, you know, hope for a beyond and that kind of transcendence. And it's interesting because I think that that psychological fear of death, the fear of nothingness and dissolution, um, there's a terror and a despair there that certainly um, leads many people, myself included, to seek for uh, a hopeful narrative, you know, somewhere. Um you know, even even I think you can hold the the narrative from a modern standpoint and say, I could just be doing this because I have a psychological, you know, concern and I seek to alleviate that. Let me toggle back into a pre-modern narrative uh, to deal with that. Um, but it is one of those issues that I feel like does, again, kind of uh, force that tension between cultural codes, because in a pre-modern view, if it's, I'm going to be reincarnated or I'm going to go to heaven or something. And in the modern worldview, it's no, this is your one life. 
those are kind of mutually exclusive. And um, at the same time, there seems to me to be something very important and pivotal about how religious traditions speak to people's desire for, uh, you know, transcendence beyond this life. Uh, and you can call it a belief or you can call it something. It's certainly an internal kind of a commitment and it's not purely ritualistic or praxis related. It's something that you, you know, you hope it's an internal state and you aspire to. Um, and yeah, those are, those are those real kind of issues where it seems like speaking of Kierkegaard and either, or is like, it really does become a sort of either or decision. Um, and I don't know necessarily how to, to but, navigate but you that. Can have, you, can, you can have faith and doubt simultaneously. So, I mean, you can doubt both uh, narratives and you can have faith in both uh, narratives. And there's actually a third one, which is the indigenous, which is animism and where you can, I mean, you could, you could even interpret the, the German idealists and their uh, all their talk about Geist and nature, spirit and nature as, as animism and say, what is, it, what is it that I feel when I go out into nature? What is it that I feel when I uh, meditate and kind of lose myself? What, what is it that connects me with all of evolution and gives me the sense of belonging in this universe? Um, does it have to have a, a, a well-defined um, afterlife or, or is it enough that I realize that that sense of being me in the world has, has another dimension as well for which I do not have a precise language and I can still explore what that is and how that feels and, and whether there is, there is hope in that um, mm -hmm. or at least hope of understanding my relationship to it better not necessarily it, but my relationship to it better. Yeah. Um, it's interesting to think of the different cultural codes as sort of providing their own form of transcendence. Yeah. Um, in, Is yeah. there any in postmodernism? That's a great question. I was just having a conversation about uh, with Joe Lightfoot about what postmodern spirituality could be. Um, I think the best I can really think of in terms of like certain liberation theologies that are you know, emancipatory, very much in this life, uh, or at least aim for that kind of emancipatory move. And I think some people might experience the activist attempts to break down oppression or, uh, you know, things of that nature and the kind of, yeah. But I mean, that's just as much a, a political modern, sure. uh, you know, hope. Right. I mean, that's, that's where you have uh, socialism, Marxism, liberalism. Um, right. No, I agree. And so, I mean, I'm, I'm, tempted more to say and as i do say in my uh after postmodernism series that postmodernism really does i think signal the sort of apogee of you know disenchantment secularization and the kind of loss of transcendent narratives in general the loss of transcendence so i i i'm i'm not necessarily beyond saying that either at the same time it's also interesting to consider forms of nihilism spiritually through a spiritual perspective and even in forms of atheism and see what can, can come from that. Um, so I don't know. I'm, I'm interested in exploring to see if there is something there, but I'm, I definitely feel like it's, it's a fair statement uh, or proposition to say that postmodernism is kind of uniquely devoid of transcendence, which obviously is a huge problem. Um, so, uh, but at the same time, I mean, does modernity offer transcendence 
in a in a in a psychologically fulfilling way through ideology or through technological development no, but it gives I, hope sure i guess uh, again though different kinds of hope you know um right. like uh because where you locate kind of the end point of that hope is sort of shifts in the different cultural codes and you can have a kind of animistic or pantheistic you know experience that can feel incredibly transcendent and meaningful somehow even within the imminent world or you can have a transcendent hope that sort of reaches beyond this world to the next or you can have a hope in this world again but kind of rooted in kind of a future-oriented ideological eschatology or something and in post-modernity yeah there it's i think that uh there you could argue that a lot of what maybe motivates people is at least deep down somewhere the hope that if you break enough stuff and you tear down enough systems that that things will be better down the road um i don't know <laughs> i don't know how do you suppose that um uh, making progress on the meaning making side of this would affect these sorts of uh situations political situations policy situations uh, my my interpretation is that they very much go hand in hand in the sense that as people as people's sense making and meaning making uh, abilities break down ideological narratives become increasingly attractive that absolutism of ideologies becomes increasingly attractive and it seems to me that it's sort of the the void or the vacuum left by what traditional religions used to do um, is in many ways uh, fueling the instability, the the chaos of narratives, the uh, just this this in, the incredible precariousness of this moment, and the kind of zealousness by which different groups are sort of advocating for their positions, um, which to me makes me think that if we could make some progress along the spiritual or, or religious front, that maybe some of this would would sort itself out that could be idealistic on my part maybe that's just i'm privileging my focus and and, and emphasis and expertise but um i don't know does that does that resonate with you at all yeah um i definitely think that if i mean if we could get a lot of that um strong emotion out of out of politics and the see this is also a question about identity and so there's a Danish philosopher who unfortunately is not very, he's a theologian actually, who's very, not very uh, known outside of Denmark, unfortunately. His name was Lökstrup. Um, and so he was um, writing in the 1950s and most of his writing is extremely complicated even in Danish, but he wrote one book that is sort of, uh, you can understand. And in it, he writes about the um, fanatic and the person with a personality. And so he basically says that the fanatic, uh, the, the ideology has taken over the personality, whereas the person with a personality has an ideology and a belief and viewpoints, and they make up the personality. And so your political ideology is just part of, of who you are. Uh, but if you're a fanatic, there is one thought that is defining who you are. And you can't see beyond it. You can't move beyond it. You can't think beyond it. Yeah. And uh, and I think that unfortunately we see a lot of uh, religious fanaticism. We see political fanaticism and identity. We see uh, wokeism. 
Uh, there are all kinds of isms and ideas where people have one major idea that's defining who they are at the moment, and then they can't see beyond it and they can't enter uh, a conversation about how can this how can this correlate with other viewpoints, other ideologies? How do how did you construct your personality? Does it just have one idea or just does it have multiple ideas that are constantly in a process of, you know, shaping who you are as you encounter the world and make mistakes like the rest of us and, you know, come up with bright ideas like the rest of us. And you learn from that and then you add a little bit more of ideology, a little bit more religion, a little bit more of postmodernism, a little bit more relativism. And it's like a little bit more of uh, nihilism and, you know, and then uh, some passion in there. And, and the more you can, you know, add to your personality, the better the ability to also, you know, have these conversations with other people yeah and be able to tolerate that other people have viewpoints that you don't like i really like that a lot um because i don't know i i have a i have a, a soft spot and an interest in not just existentialism but also jungian ideas of individuation and uh if we could focus on people's healthy development of a complex personality um, th th there wouldn't be that kind of void there that that sort of just the monolithic ideology sucks up. Um, and I think I, I would assume that this probably ties in pretty directly with with your interest in building and, and education in terms of being Absolutely. able to create holistic and, you know, nuanced, complex individuals. Um, and uh, it's an interesting idea of, of focusing more attention on um, pedagogies that I think, yeah, are are that help develop full human beings because that sort of weeds out the, the sort of fanaticism that right. you're talking about. That's very interesting. And, exp and exposing people to many different uh, ideologies and ways of thinking. And, and, and this is also very much in tune with metamodernity because if you understand animism and, you know, the whole stone age heritage, if you understand more than one religion and can see the one that you subscribe to through the lens of other religions, if you can also see that through the lens of modernity and science and the secular society and how that fits in, and you can deconstruct it, that would be how you would be using the, the postmodern uh, code. Then you can choose what speaks to me the most what is most important to me? What is, what is really meaningful to me? How do I combine that so that I can express myself in the fullest and most meaningful way and that I, so that I can experience as much of life as possible and uh, be surrounded by people who can teach me things and allow me to see things that I haven't seen before. One of the things that makes me think of is just how uh, I think in our current context, in our education context, people get the narratives without the the tools to actually implement them. So one of the things where it's like you're talking about when, you know, if people could develop a, a deeper, richer sense of their individuality, wouldn't that be great for all the reasons we've been talking about? In many ways, that is a big component of modernity is developing, you know, a, a full, robust sense of the individual. And yet 
that sort of has been flattened in our culture, at least certainly in American culture, to be this sort of cult of narcissism, narcissism and the cult of exceptionality and people sort of chasing for, you know, uh, a kind of fame that is actually rather hollow. It's like they get the story without any of the actual As a good friend of the U.S. It. once called it, deeply shallow. Yeah. Exactly. And similarly with the postmodern code, I think people are taught the idea of like uh, critical thinking, but it manifests just as just a kind of general skepticism and distrust rather than actually learning the tools, the praxis of how do you apply critical thinking in earnest. Right. And, but do you, yeah. but also do you know who said it first? I mean, do you, I mean, have you ever met, uh, say Socrates? or Plato, or Aristotle? Have, have you, mm. do you know the, the world that they were, they were opposing? Uh, do you, I mean, have you, have you read Nietzsche? Have you um, read any of Kant? I mean, all these thoughts, I mean, do you, have you actually read some of the sources and tried to understand how this thinking came about um, before you, you know, try to convince others that you're right. Um, yeah. Well, because what I'm because where this leads me is like I, we need to emphasize a praxis, not just the, the story, but what it, how you do it, the how-to of these that things. That too. And 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 I think what you're getting at is precisely that, which is like part of that praxis is the intellectual process of of learning and reading and taking in new information and um, going back to the source. Um, and, you know, if there is to be some kind of a, uh, the emergence of some, not just a, because I, I think whatever metamodern religion or spirituality is, if we could have a praxis that, that did cultivate what some of the things that we're talking about, um, there seems to be a lot of overlap with what that would be and kind of the standard intellectual pursuit of knowledge as it's been practiced, you know, um, I guess really for millennia which is I, I, in some ways also all tied back to, to just the, the wisdom traditions of and philosophia and all that. Um, but yeah. But I mean, if, if you want, if you want the benefits of the uh, equal rights and the modern world and of the wokeism and multiple perspectives of the postmodern world, and you want to deconstruct the power structures uh, that are there if things are not going to fall apart and you're going to leave a vacuum or a void where some uh, totalitarian narcissist can come in and you know fire up the masses and just get people to run in one direction and then you're freaking lost um, then you also need to uh, understand where the things including the current power structures are coming from and you need to understand i mean it's like you know when you build a or like a house of cards if you pull out one of the bottom ones you risk that the top you know collapses right so you have to understand you actually have to understand the systems that you criticize you can't just criticize the result and then um i mean there are obvious you know uh like racism and there are obvious, you know, wrong behaviors out there. But if, but if you're fundamentally going to change the institutions and you want to create legislation and you want to go to the root of the problem, you also have to understand the root. Um, 
and it's not that hard. I mean, there are many places you can start. It does not. It doesn't have to take twenty years. Uh, you could get most of it within a semester, but you have hmm. you have to understand where things are coming from. And we're talking about the the pre-modern era and all the many different traditions. I mean, we can learn a lot from Confucius and the Taoism and yin and yang thinking from from the Eastern philosophies. There is a whole African uh, philosophy of Ubuntu. And there's then there's the European tradition uh, for formal uh, logic. I mean, there are traditions from around the globe that have a lot of valuable thinking and ways of understanding the world and yourself in the world. And we need to understand as many of those as possible. Um, but the, the the sort of the uh, the just you know just if you only know the surface and want to have uh, you know deep changes you're you're on a wrong course. But if you have deep understanding and deep changes, then we then we can start talking. Yeah. Thank you so much for this, uh, Lena Anderson. I don't know if there's anything you want to quote unquote plug, but um, but folks should get a copy of this um, Meta Modernity meaning and hope in a complex world. And you uh, also just put out a book in 2020 called Bildung, correct? Yes, I did. Yeah. Uh, I just happened to have it right here. <laughs> oh, wow, look, matching covers and everything. <laughs> yeah, right, right, yeah. Okay. Uh, so it's going to, it's uh, actually, we're, so we have a think tank here in uh, Copenhagen called Nordic Bildung. And these two books and a third book that is coming out in September uh, about freedom, it's called Libertism. Um, will be sort of the foundation on which we're going to be be basing our work. So we've we've had a we've had a challenge trying to both start a think tank and define a philosophical uh, foundation for it, and uh, you know telling people about our thoughts and ideas and and where this world could be heading and how to think about it. So um, so the third book is on its way. So they're they're kind of they're kind of connected. And when we have three of them, it'll just be you know. A, a package a trilogy yes exactly yeah indeed awesome well thank you so much um and is there a website to look at? yes yeah. uh you can go to nordicbildung.org yeah. and uh there's uh an introduction to the books and our work and um and you can find uh, a european building network there is a north american building network in the making and there is also a latin american building network in the making and you can find it all on cool. nordicbildung.org it's so it's just really exciting to me because I feel like um, there are these sort of this flourishing, this outcropping of all these different folks doing incredibly constructive and uh, like this work that is really actually trying to implement a a better world in the kind of, you know, utopian sense that you referred to earlier, but also in a very deeply grounded and uh, kind of holistic sense. Um, and I just find that to be really compelling and exciting. Um, and it gives, speaking of hope, it gives hope uh, in these, it does, doesn't in these it? times. It really does. So <laughs> anyway, Lena Anderson, thank you so much. And uh, maybe we'll talk again before too long. I certainly hope so. It was a great pleasure. Thank you. All right. Take care. Thank you. Take care. Bye.